Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on post-election criminal justice reform updates will be introduced by my co-host today, Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University. Thank you, Ashley. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. It aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today on this episode, we're talking to a leading expert on federal criminal justice, Professor Stephen F. Smith, the Diane and M.O. Miller Research Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School and an affiliated faculty member with the Academy for Justice. You can find his full biography on academyforjustice.org. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Professor Smith, uh, let's set the stage a bit for this discussion. Uh, according to a recent Gallup poll, 80% of Americans worry about crime and 53% worry a great deal about crime. Do you believe that criminal justice related issues will be key to upcoming races during our midterm elections? Probably not as much as it might otherwise have been. I mean, a lot of things have happened over the last two years that have tended to put criminal justice matters, I think, uh, on the back burner, obviously inflation and sort of the economic woes, the risk of an economic slowdown um, has has uh, been an important factor. The war in Ukraine um, continues on and uh, there may be some escal escalation there. We're still not completely free of the pandemic. So there have been all of these things that have naturally tended to take uh, attention away from criminal justice reform. Unfortunately, one thing that actually has come up that may actually make it harder has been the murder rate and sort of concern that crime rates are going up. And so the survey data uh, you mentioned is consistent with a perception that, that violent crimes and homicides are, are going in the wrong uh, direction. And so it's possible um, those areas uh, might come uh, into play. But I do think these exogenous forces, including of course, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, may ultimately weigh more heavily in the minds of voters um, in the upcoming midterm elections. Well, Steve, that's fantastic. It leads right into something, uh, I, the kind of contrast that voters will be facing this upcoming election. And let me set the stage. Yeah, in a previous post-election uh, update on criminal justice reform a couple of years ago uh, for us, you had mentioned the rise of, of course, the defund the police movement, which uh, fairly or unfairly became associated with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. President Biden has been resistant to the calls to defund the police, uh, to the chagrin of many of in his own party. And indeed, he has come out uh, with calls for more funding uh, for law enforcement, at least towards particular programs and types of policing. At the same time, his administration hasn't rejected um, the mantle of criminal justice reform 
and at least appears to support a slate of, of reform-related policies um, that might have an impact on various parts of the criminal process, upfront reforms on substantive criminal law, like the, the federal drug war, um, and also back-end reforms on post-conviction relief, like uh, the clemency process. But this is all, as you suggested, it's pitted against, uh, there is a, another uh, narrative there. And on the other side of the political aisle, some Republican leaders have, have challenged not only the defund movement, but criminal justice reform more generally. And, and some have claimed that calls to defund the police and the implementation of other types of, of criminal justice reforms, like uh, cashless bail, have led to surges in crime across America, particularly serious and violent crime. And um, the political results include, uh, among other things, the ousting of, the, of, the, of a so-called uh, progressive prosecutor, uh, Chesa Budin, uh, the former uh, district attorney of San Francisco, which is perhaps the American city most associated with progressive politics and policies. From your perspective as a scholar of criminal law and a student of criminal justice politics, uh, what, do you, what would you say is going on here? What is your take on a recent trends in crime rates and uh, the pre-election politics of American criminal justice? Right. Well, I think um, it's it's natural for the Republicans to want to seize upon rising uh, crime rates. I mean, you know, frankly, they don't have much to run on independently uh, of that. I think the, the the Democratic Congress has been pretty productive, um, and overall, I think the Biden administration um, has achieved a lot of results. Unfortunately, criminal justice really isn't one of them. Reform, but in general, I think they've done a pretty decent job, given that they barely control. Um, uh, Congress. So yeah, Republicans are naturally going to seize on that after the Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade. Uh, Democrats, for the first time in a while, have feel like they have the wind at their backs for the election. And so naturally, Republicans are going to try to seize on crime. Um, I actually think they can overplay their hand. I don't think the public is going to buy into the idea that having until very recently supported criminal justice reform, they're not suddenly going to think, gee, um, we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and go back to the tough on crime policies. Uh, we've been through that uh, before. I think um, Boudin being recalled in San Francisco may be one off, may be a one-off. He may not have been um, as effective as other progressive prosecutors have been in sort of messaging. Um, and um, and um, I think Larry Krasner is in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia District Attorney there, by contrast, has been has been a, a successful proponent of deep change. Um, and so I don't think criminal justice reform is is dead in the water. I think it's still there, but you know, it is a little more complicated than it was uh, when uh, in during the 2020 election. Um, and just a recent indicator is um, the president's recent State of the Union address really didn't say anything about criminal justice reform. And the little it did say focused on what Professor um, Luna was talking about um, when he talked about defunding the police, I mean, President Biden was clear that we don't need to defund the police, and instead we should deepen our investment in policing and use that as a as a as a fulcrum to try to get police to do things better uh, and differently. And that was an applause line. He got a lot of applause for coming out uh, for repeating his opposition uh, to defunding the police. But I think the criminal justice reform movement is still. Uh, alive uh, and well. And I believe the president is going to step up on that. And indeed, this summer, he issued a, a wave, the first wave and during his presidency of commutations and pardons. 75 uh, prisoners received commutations. I think there were drug, mainly, mainly drug uh, offenders, had their sentences shortened um, by executive action. 
and three uh, were pardoned. Um, it took him a while to do that, but it, that was earlier than either President Obama did uh, or than most presidents. Most presidents wait till their last year or two in office before they start doing that. Um, President Biden has bucked that trend and, th and rightfully so, um, but, but there's more work to be done. That's great and, and uh, transitions nicely into my next question um, and really diving into the White House perspective and whether the Biden administration can reconcile its own goals with those within the, both the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party. Uh, a recent press release on President Biden's Safer America plan emphasized further investment in community policing and crime prevention, along with additional funding for mental health and substance abuse treatment crisis responders, and social workers. All told, the Biden administration's 2023 budget calls for a fully paid for new investment of approximately $35 billion to support law enforcement and crime prevention, in addition to the president's $2 billion discretionary request for the same programs. That's a lot of money. Is it, is it worth it, in your opinion? And how might this proposed budget create tensions or opportunities in the wake of the looming midterm election? Um, I think uh, it is uh, worth it. Um, um, and it may not be enough, but it's certainly uh, a step in the right direction. And I think um, President Biden has seen um, that the Republican attacks on defund the police and that whole movement really are superficial. That is to say, they're aimed at what I consider to have been a strategic mistake in terms of packaging of the reform movements. I mean, nobody uh, wants to zero, to fund the police indicates to me a desire to zero out police. And obviously we can't have law and order in a civilized society or protect vulnerable members of the public uh, if we don't have uh, police. So clearly we need police. What the, what the defund the policing movement was really about was strategically reallocating funding. So the police focus on areas um, where their particular kind of coercion is required um, and steers them away from social work, mental health, and other things that other professionals can do better. And so we need to basically fund those other professionals to do those other functions that police are not adequately suited to do. But we do need to maintain funding for the core functions that only the police uh, can do. And so that is perfectly consistent with this progressive narrative that substantial ref police reform uh, is required. And I think President Biden understands that and is following through. He's had a recent executive uh, order um, trying to address some of the failures in policing that would have been addressed by the George Floyd Policing Act had it not died uh, in, in the Senate. Um, and so I think the president uh, is moving us in the right direction and, and, and it's gonna take money to try to convince police departments that are steeped in um, the thinking of the past, uh, who think that the only way uh, to protect the public is more arrests, longer sentences, more punitive measures. It's gonna take funds to try to get police to reorient uh, their thinking and to see that there's a better way uh, to do things. Um, the president believes, and I agree, that we do that that bloated prison popula populations, such as the kind we've had for decades, is not necessary to protect the public, and in fact, may be well counterproductive to the goals of public safety. We're wasting a lot of money on bloated prisons, housing old men and women who and nonviolent offenders who really can be safely released uh, and using funds that could be better served on preventative policing um, and other measures such as addressing uh, root causes of crime. And that's where the Republican Party, I think, repeat, repeatedly falls short. 
They think the hammer is the only way uh, to bring down crime. And really what you need is a two-pronged approach. All right, you need to address crime directly. And there's a role for imprisonment in that. You need police in order to do that. Um, but you also have to address the deeper causes that are correlated uh, with uh, criminal activity, the dysfunction uh, in local communities and in certain families, child abuse, you know, uh, mental health problems that are being unaddressed, um, substance abuse problems that are not being addressed except with imprison arrest and imprisonment. These are deeper problems that sociologists know are, of course, correlated with criminal activity. Republicans generally don't want to do anything about that except lock them up. It's just a tired approach. And I think the president understands it's a more complex problem. There is a role for policing, an essential role for policing, but there's an essential role for reinvest, reinvesting in communities, strengthening families, and bringing other tools to bear and addressing what is a truly a complex phenomenon, the phenomenon of crime. That's terrific, Stephen. I, let me pick up on a couple of things you mentioned, and, and we'll circle back particularly to um, the idea of allowing for more social services and mental health um, professionals to be involved in cases that may not call for a full-fledged criminal justice response. But let's talk about the, uh, you mentioned that, that Congress failed to pass the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act after it had uh, the, it passed the House, didn't get through the Senate. And, uh, but the president did sign an executive order, as, as you mentioned. It was, a, I believe it was the Advancing Effective Accountable Policing and Criminal Justice Practice to Enhance Public Trust and Public Safety Act, or excuse me, executive order, quote unquote. And um, it, it was at least touted as the most substantial federal action on police reform since the murder of, uh, of George Floyd. It in, uh, required federal law enforcement to contribute to a national law enforcement accountability database, which was going to uh, gather police misconduct, uh, as well as submit information to the FBI related to use of force incidents. Um, do you think that this increase, at least apparent increase in transparency, can actually affect policing practices around the country at uh, the various departments? And, and what issues do you foresee when it comes to um, mandatory uh, reporting uh, or to reporting period? Uh, what do you think generally about using databases more robustly as a potential reform to some of the issues that you brought up? Right, no, it's a great question. I think it's a good start, but it's just a first step. So this, as I understand the executive order, it's limited to federal law enforcement uh, agencies. It addresses a bunch of things. Um, such as the use of no-knock warrants, um, and it tries to deal with that, neck chokeholds um, and things like that. And they're improving data collection, as you mentioned, is an important uh, part of that, creating a federal uh, database. But as, as you know, right, the federal law enforcement, the federal prison population is a small slice of the overall prison, uh, uh, overall share of criminal litigation uh, within the United States. The overwhelming majority happens in the state system. Uh, by state and local police with local jails and state uh, prisons. And so ultimately what we need is, is criminal justice reform, not just at the federal level, but throughout the country. Now, the federal government can't control or direct states and how they um, uh, do policing um, and how they structure their uh, criminal justice systems. Uh, that's beyond their power under the Constitution. But they do have the power under the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court, to condition federal grant monies to, on achieving certain um, policy ends that the federal government wants. And I think that's going to be 
the lever going forward is trying to use federal grant money on which every state depends um, extensively um, to require states as a condition of receiving federal funding to, to do things differently, to shrink their prison populations, to address these abusive uh, police practices, to report data uh, to the federal government. I mean, as things now stand, the re- as I understand it, the data reporting on certain uh, things is entirely voluntary. And so one, as important as um, police-involved shootings resulting in fatalities are, we really don't have any authoritative data on how often, how many people are killed by the police, let's say, in each and every year. I know the Washington Post, a media outlet, uh, has tried to come up with its own database to try to keep track of those. But I just think that's um, that's unfortunate. Um, you, you know, um, you get into trouble when you don't take account. You know, the people who have the biggest problem managing their finances probably don't balance the checkbooks. If you want to um, keep an eye on things, you got to measure progress um, and collect the data. And so that's very important. So definitely that is a step uh, in the right direction, trying to force states to report on a real-time basis uh, data about police shootings, uses of force more generally uh, is a, a very important thing. I think the database for for abusive uh, police officers is a very important development. Too often at the state level, uh, police who are fired for misconduct in one town end up just getting rehired um, in the next town over or in some other police department. And, and so a database that federal agencies use and that we could try to incentivize states to use could be an important step to getting bad policemen off the force. Um, We just can't have a revolving door approach to bad police where they commit some atrocity in one jurisdiction and then just get hired somewhere else. Um, We need to identify bad police, meaning police who serially commit serious misconduct um, and then make sure that they never wear uh, the badge again. Um, that's the only way. That's an essential thing in making police departments um, operate in accordance uh, with federal law. I think another thing in the executive order that's important is limiting the militarization uh, of police. The federal government literally, um, even though it doesn't control criminal justice policy at the state level, as I mentioned, they certainly can incentivize activities and those incentives can be good and they can be bad. The militarized policing, I think, is an example of bad incentives where the federal government gave surplus military equipment uh, to states and localities back there, going back to the Obama years even. And um, it's really gotten out of hand. Police have these military weapons that should belong on a battlefield, not on Main Street uh, in the United States. And so now President Biden uh, is, is going even further than the Obama administration to halt the military, the providing the provision of military equipment to um, state and local police. I think that's uh, a very uh, good thing, but it is important. And so this is, like I said, this is a first step. It's an important first step. It shows the president remains committed uh, to criminal justice reform. Um, ultimately, however, I think we need to break the log jam, log jam in Congress and get some of these things enshrined, uh, these policies, these reforms enshrined into federal law. And then on top of that, we need to incentivize good policing uh, at the state and local level, including reducing prison sizes, coming up with more reasonable standards uh, of force. And and if we if we only 
if we declare ourselves, if we declare mission accomplished, to borrow a phrase from another administration at the federal level, we're missing where the action really is, and that's at the state and local level. Stephen, that uh, that's that that's terrific. Let me add some uh, a couple of follow ups to that, because it, some of these things feel like they are reconsiderations or maybe rehashes of things that have occurred in the past. Obviously, you've highlighted issue, ongoing issues with the drug war and its impact on federal criminal justice. Um, the Biden administration has started to rethink that, or at least allegedly with regards to um, uh, the movement with, uh, with cannabis. The, the larger question of the drug war hasn't yet been fully um, uh, filled out in terms of either Congress uh, or uh, the executive branch. Um, but there are some other issues that have come back as well. Uh, President Biden has called for a revitalization of the uh, the COPS program. You remember that? That's the Community-Oriented yes. Policing Services, um, which he spearheaded, I believe, when he was in the uh, the U.S. Senate. And just for those who don't don't fully fully remember it, it's the in theory it's supposed to, if community-oriented policing, it, you're supposed to focus law enforcement on developing relationships with community members. Um, you're supposed to generate a, a kind of highly personal form of policing where, uh, among other things, an officer might patrol the same area for an extended time period and develop a partnership or relationship with citizens to help identify and solve problems. Um, how did this turn out in the original form, just to, as a kind of get us up to date? Um, and then what do you think is the, the possibilities going forward if President Biden's commitment um, on these uh, programs uh, turns out to be to have some full force behind it? Right. Well, community-oriented policing um, is 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 a buzzword. It's a concept that's used uh, by reformers. And, and I'm not exactly sure what they always mean when they use it. But certainly, President Obama's commission on 20th first century policing was very bullish on uh, community policing. Um, and, you know, I think there's much to commend the idea, although the devil is always in the, the, the tales, right? I mean, part of the problem we have now is that police are not, the police don't generally live in communities uh, that, that they that they serve, um, and so say if the police officers live in suburbs and then are policing inner city neighborhoods, right? They don't live in those neighborhoods. They're not known quantities within those neighborhoods, and there's such a well of distrust in those communities. Um, not because those communities are anti-law enforcement. To the contrary, they desperately want and need effective law enforcement. The problem they've had for decades is they get just bad policing. Um, the police are viewed as occupying forces. They harass the members of those communities instead of dealing with persistent uh, public safety problems like huge um, murder rates and huge and, and low rates of low clearance rates for homicide. I know Chicago near uh, where I live, I think the last data year of data I've seen had like a 30% clearance rate uh, for murders, um, and it's just um, uh, it's it's just outrageous. Um, and you've got lots of victims victims in those communities um, who are not getting justice. And so, hope the idea of community policing would be they have if police actually lived in the communities they serve, they would build trust with community members, and that kind of trust is essential uh, to their provision of, of information and cooperation uh, that that uh, police need uh, to be effective. They just have that from the word go in suburban communities. It takes work, given our history of poorly serving inner city communities. It takes work to do that, but that can pay enormous dividends. 
And part of that of community policing, I think, is not just that police officers should live in the communities that they serve, uh, but that they should actually come from those communities. And so diversity of police forces, I think, is an important thing to, to, to focus on as well. It's not a cure-all or a panacea by any stretch of the imagination, but it is important, I think, for people, um, particularly in uh, jurisdictions like inner cities where there's been a, just a long history of bad policing. It's important to have to have um, police departments resemble the communities that they serve. Um, and it's not effective, it's not helpful when you have a situation as the Obama administration found to exist in Ferguson, Missouri, um, where the community Ferguson was in, in um, was 70, was 80% black, I think. And the police department, the Ferguson police department was 90% white. I mean, that's just a prescription uh, for trouble. Uh, so I think uh, community policing is important. It, you're right, it's not a new idea. It's something that's been out there for a while. It's going all the way back to President Clinton and 100,000 new cops uh, and so forth. Um, I think the problem, and I'm not an expert on this issue on community policing, but I think the problem was there were, the program was not defined, the original cops program was not defined in ways that actually would have produced the full effect uh, uh, that they wanted. So for example, police could move or take the money and use it instead of putting new police on the, on the streets. They could use that to fund existing program uh, cops and then devote the money to something else. Well, that's not why the money was provided. So hopefully some of those um, loopholes uh, in the program uh, will be filled. Um, but I do think uh, community policing has the potential to make an important uh, contribution, but it's not a, it's not a panacea uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it could be an important piece uh, of the reform uh, movement. Stephen, that, that actually dovetails nicely with something that you discussed in uh, the last uh, post-election update, um, which was the possibility that the Biden administration might start prioritizing so-called pattern of practice investigations conducted by the Justice Department to uh, root out unlawful policing across the nation. And this, this was an about face from policies of the previous administration. Can you give us a little uh, ex explanation on, on the pattern of practice investigations and proceedings and, and, and how they have uh, proceeded under the first, uh, the first part of the Biden administration? Right. Well, I think that was, that was an issue that the president spoke uh, passionately about on, on the campaign trail. And, like it, and the Trump administration pretty much gone out of the business of using that authority um, to reform uh, troubled uh, police departments. I think literally in four years, the Trump administration uh, 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 opened only one pattern of practice investigation. Um, and I think that was a case where you just had a, a drug unit um, in a police department in Massachusetts that was so corrupt uh, that it was actually jeopardizing her ability to get convictions that would stick. Um, but they really, they had zero interest and using that important authority uh, to deal with abusive police in, in situations like the George Floyd uh, killing. And so it's a new day now. Um, and just obviously, you know, that authority was something that uh, Senator, then Senator Biden proudly championed um, as a member of Congress. Uh, and so luckily there's a new day. We're back in the business at the federal level in the Justice Department uh, in using that authority uh, to call troubled police departments to count. And again, the goal is not punitive. The goal is to rehabilitate and reform departments that have structural problems that result in unconstitutional 
uh, policing. These are not one-off things. In many departments, there are deep, deep histories of problems and it's embedded in policies and practices uh, within uh, those particular departments. And so two departments that have been exposed as troubled in recent years, Minneapolis with where George Floyd was murdered and um, Louisville uh, where Breonna Taylor was killed in a completely senseless uh, no-knock warrant uh, situation uh, or a raid by the police. Um, those two departments are now under under pattern of practice proceedings so they're being uh, investigated. And the recent executive order we talked about uh, had some provisions that were designed to strengthen the effectiveness of those uh, pattern of practice uh, investigations. So I think so I think it's 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 definitely that is an important thing um, that the Justice Department is taking up this this um, this reform authority and being more proactive in its use. I do remain concerned though that it's not being used as widely as it ought to be. I mean, right now, I think, and for the history of it, of this authority, which goes back to the 90s, I think we've the Justice Department has been a little too reactive. That is to say, it's waited for controversies involving local police departments um, before opening these investigations. Uh, and I think they need to be a lot more uh, proactive in using, in using their authority uh, under these statutes. And this authority, I think, is only the it should only be the first step, right? Um, I think you need to have back end accountability in terms of charging police who abuse their authority under federal law. Um, and the Biden administration, I think, followed through with that. We saw uh, in connection with the officers who who stood by, who murdered and stood by and murdered, watched George Floyd be murdered in Minneapolis. Uh, they were charged and convicted. Uh, within um, the federal uh, system. That was a positive uh, development. We need a lot more of that. Uh, we also need to address some of the limitations that have hobbled uh, federal civil rights actions as a tool for um, giving victims of police brutality and other misconduct redress, which is essential for deterrence uh, of unconstitutional um, uh, police practices. That's great, Professor Smith. And uh... Just so enlightening. I would like to turn back a little bit to something you touched on earlier in this podcast, and that's mass incarceration. You've highlighted President Biden's call for comprehensive reform from front end of sentencing to the back end of prison release at a federal level. Can you talk to us about some of the challenges that these programs and policies might face? Right. Well, we have some some structural problems uh, in the federal system that need to be addressed. For one, um, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, the agency that's responsible for setting sentencing policies and enacting, um, promulgating and updating the federal sentencing guidelines that guide federal judges in sentencing federal offenders. Uh, the Sentencing Commission has been without a quorum since 2019. So it is on the sidelines, unable to do anything, um, which in past generations that may not have been such a bad thing, right? Because it, in the past, the, the, the Sentencing Commission uh, has been pretty regressive and actually promoted rather than helped counteract mass incarceration. More recently, however, the, the commission has been, been helping address mass incarceration and racial disparities uh, in punishment. And so we need to have the Sentencing Commission back up and running to do its job, but we've got too many vacancies uh, and so I think we've got to get the administration's got to get people in there um, so that the, the commission is an agency that's focused on federal sentencing. It's important to have that sort of specialist focus 
on these problems throughout the federal system, um, no matter how determined, it's just not something a president can do uh, by executive order. Um, and so it just, that's a structural uh, problem, right? We, the, the, the burden of, of reform in the federal system right now is being borne disproportionately by the administration itself because Congress is hopelessly divided uh, and because the Sentencing Commission simply doesn't have doesn't have a quorum, so it can't do its important work. There is also a problem in terms of, well, I mean, we should give the administration the benefit of the doubt, right? It has done, the President Biden has followed through on promises to diversify the federal judiciary, in particular, to get more minorities and women uh, in uh, into federal judgeships. And equally important, I think, uh, is to get to end the sort of pr the prosecutor sort of, dare I say, chokehold on the judiciary. So many, historically, so many federal judges have been former prosecutors um, and, and we've missed the important contribution that attorneys who have defended people charged with crimes and in particular indigent people who are charged with crimes. That's an important perspective that's been largely absent uh, from the federal judiciary. And thankfully the president is getting a lot of judicial nominee nominees through um, and they are more diverse in terms of race, gender, professional background than we've ever, ever seen. So all of those are very, very positive uh, steps. And I hope the president will do likewise when it comes to uh, the sentencing uh, commission. But the biggest structural problem is without legislation, the reform measures that he's taking by, that the president's taking by executive order are at the whim of subsequent uh, presidents, right? So putting a moratorium on capital punishment, as President Biden has done, can easily be overturned um, by another president if, unless there is action, statutory action to actually abolish the death penalty and commutations, reducing the sentence of people currently under sentence of death in the federal system, unless it's reduced to life, another president can come in and just flip the switch and we're back in the death penalty uh, business. So that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, it's important that he that the president is trying to do things by executive order, but that can only be part of the solution. Ultimately, you need legislation to memorialize uh, these reforms in federal statutory law. And also we need um, federal programs that will incentivize states to do the right thing, to shrink their prison populations, to reimagine policing, which I think is the phrase progressives should have used instead of defunding the police, it's reimagining re policing, um, just focusing on how best to use this critical resource for protecting the public safety. That's where we ought to do it, where, where we ought to be focusing. So I, I don't know if that gets at what you were trying to get at. It does. It, that was great. Thank you. And it kind of it ties into my next question on uh, resources and uh, President Biden's Safe for America plan purports to address the causes of crime in order to reduce the burden on police officers, as you know we've just discussed. And uh, one of the things is bolstering mental health resources, such as creating the 988 crisis line uh, response line and requesting 700 million dollars to expand crisis centers and crisis responses to help people experience a behavioral health crisis. So, what's the idea behind this policy, and, and do you think it's likely to work? Well, I think I think the idea is that a lot that 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 um, um, police uh, are good at doing a lot of things, but they're not trained to be good at dealing with people in mental health crisis. And um, and many of these calls for service that police officers receive involve individuals having mental health crises. 
And then not only are police not trained for it, but the training they do have, the attitude they have is always, it, it tends to be no matter what, ensure that you go home at the end of the shift. In other words, you use whatever force is necessary, do whatever it takes to neutralize any conceivable threat uh, to the police. And um, and so that leads them to, to be, I think, oh, too quick in many instances uh, to use force. And one of the greatest tragedies, I think, um, in the police uh, shootings that we've seen are just family members who have a, a, pers- a, f- a loved one having a mental health crisis and they just need help. And they're calling to get their loved one help so they can get treatment, so they can get well, to keep that person safe. And then the police show up there, draw their guns and kill that person. I mean, it's just really heartbreaking or uh, a, a, a wellness check. You call, hey, we haven't been able to get in touch with our niece or whatever, and the police go over there and they kill that person, um, claiming they perceived some sort of threat uh, to themselves. I think many of these uh, situations with people in crisis do not require an armed response, and and police are generally not good at de-escalating situations. They tend to escalate, uh, and that's one of the problems the executive order is trying to deal with in the federal system, trying to get federal enforcement agencies to prioritize de-escalation uh, uh, rather than escalation, to use the least amount of force necessary to accomplish lawful enforcement uh, ends. But police are not good at sort of recognizing people who are in crisis and uh, they see failure to comply with their commands as resistance and they tend to dial it up uh, when they get resistance and not recognizing that many of these cases could be more skillfully handled in ways that don't involve loss of life or use of um, excessive force. Social workers, mental health professionals might be better able to deal with those situations, maybe active domestic violence situations, you know, sending an armed officer of the law in there has the potential, it might be necessary in certain of these situations, but it has the potential to take bad situations and make them, make them worse. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to provide the funding um, that's required to try to steer police departments to hire or localities to hire the professionals that are better suited to doing that work uh, than uh, police. The federal government can, the bully pulpit is not enough. Uh, we've got to put our money where our mouth is. Like I said, this problem, many of these problems have been created by the federal government pursuing bad policies, such as the war on drugs, such as asset forfeiture, militarization of police. All right. And it's time for us to turn it around and for the federal government to actually put its money where its mouth is and to say, to lead by example in terms of the federal system, but then to provide states and localities the funds they need to reimagine policing, shrink prison populations, and to pursue root causes uh, to poverty, lack of economic opportunity, substance uh, abuse problems, and mental health problems that are correlated uh, with criminal activity. Stephen, I, I want to end with a couple of, let's say, some tough questions. You, you mentioned them uh, earlier, and, and more tough because they are, they are hot-button political issues, but they have implications for criminal justice. So one is gun control, and as that, of course, has been a big issue uh, since the uh, tragic uh, mass shootings, uh, I guess most recently in Uvalde, Texas, and then in Buffalo, uh, New York. And there have been calls for um, uh, for gun control and also pushback uh, against such calls 
uh, across the nation. And I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that issue, in particular, how it relates to criminal justice and what, if anything, the federal government can do uh, with regard uh, that might impact uh, those terrible incidents. And then the the second is you mentioned a couple of times the the uh, the Dobbs opinion. This is the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, um, and of course much of that is a, a discussion for uh, let's say our colleagues and that are focused elsewhere, uh, mm-hmm. Stephen. But there is a part of it which very much is concerned the criminal justice system, and some of it may well be issues about the interaction between the federal government and its powers, uh, either to prohibit or to prescribe, and uh, and the states which have their own set of criminal justice objectives, which have uh, undoubtedly with some states have changed in the wake of this decision. So in, in, with either of those topics, if you have any thoughts, um, uh, I'm sure our, our listeners would love to hear them. Well, sure. Well, so gun violence is a huge uh, problem and it feeds other problems, right? It, communi- it creates, it, com- it contributes to instability uh, in uh, inner city uh, minority communities, which have been plagued for for decades and decades with unusually high rates uh, of homicide. Um, but it's also a problem, obviously, in schools across the country. And unfortunately, it plays into, into the rise of sort of, uh, you know, white supremacists and other extremists who are determined to use force. And so all of these problems uh, come together in tragedies like, like, like Uvalde um, and others uh, too numerous to mention. Uh, so gun control is of is a very important. I shouldn't say gun control. Reducing violence, bringing down murders and homicides is an important issue. If gun control can contribute to that, um, then um, it's important. Frankly, I'm not sure, given the how much gun control measures we already have on the books at the state level and the federal level, I'm not sure how much else is out there. We can ban assault weapons, and that's been. Uh, proposed. We can ban large capacity uh, magazines, but I think those are sort of, I'm not opposed to those. I just don't know if those kinds of measures standing alone are going to make make a difference. But um, I think it is wrong for Republicans to just say in the wake of shootings that you can't even consider ways of dealing with the violence that include dealing with guns. Um, I think that is just, that's just a dodge and it's wrong, um, that's exactly when we should take these matters up, when the costs of an action um, are brought uh, to bear. And for me personally, um, you know, this highlights um, some of the problems. So one of the things we've dealt with is, uh, we talked about militarized policing, but police in schools, it was a big issue and it still is. And yet, you know, in Uvalde and in um, Parkland, We saw that that's not a panacea, that shooters who went to those schools intent on murdering um, people chose schools that had police officers assigned to them. In both cases, there were police officers, armed officers there and on the premises when the shootings happened. They did not do anything to stop. They didn't deter the shooters from what they intended to do, nor did the police take effective action. They They hid for cover while kids were being murdered. And so... This just is an additional reason for for me, uh, among many, to rethink the presence of armed police officers in schools. I think they are not providing the public protection uh, that they were supposed to provide. 
And then in many cases, not all cases, um, police in schools just leads to policing in schools and the police are not acting as they're supposed to, which is as resources to the school. They are instead doing things like searching kids for contraband, uh, including uh, drugs. And of course, the school to prison pipeline, I think, uh, is heavily influenced by the fact that you've got cops in schools handling disciplinary matters as criminal law matters uh, requiring arrest and prosecution uh, rather than in-school discipline. Um, So that is something I think we need to think about, but we can also think about things that have nothing to do with guns, uh, such as um, maybe metal detectors in schools, making sure schools are locked down so that students, so that only students can be uh, on the premises during the day. And there may be some gun control measures that could make a contribution to the problem of school shootings into the larger problem of just violence and murder, uh, gun violence in this country. Uh, And I I think all of those things should be on the table um, to try to deal with these particular problems. And then with with Dobbs, I mean, it certainly has uh, really ignited a firestorm. I don't know how much opponents of Roe uh, foresaw what they were doing, um, but I think it's undeniable after the Kansas stunning vote in Kansas on the amendment to protect abortion rights uh, in that deep red state. I don't think there's any way to deny that this issue is one that has real legs. I think Republicans are sort of backtracking all over the place uh, on that uh, particular uh, issue, although for, for whatever reason, Senator Lindsey Graham has proposed a nationwide federal ban on abortions. Um, but in general, um, Republicans are, I think, hidden for the hills, kind of on that issue, de-emphasizing it, wanting to talk about inflation, gas prices, almost anything, the Dobbs decision. And the, the deeper issue, I think, is the trust in the judiciary, the federal judiciary, and in the Supreme Court in particular, is that historic, is a historic lows. Um, and so that could have the, beyond the abortion issue, that could have the effect uh, really forcing people, uh, voters, to take seriously the notion, uh, the state criminal, state constitutional law, as a basis for protecting uh, rights, not leaving important civil liberties questions to the courts and to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court in particular, but actually sort of promoting direct democracy by supporting ballot referendum measures that will address some of these problems. If so, um, that could be a positive development. But I know there's definitely a lot of anger directed at the Supreme Court for overturning uh, Roe, and I don't think it's going to blow over as Republicans hope. Well, well Stephen, we, you and I could talk all day about um, about criminal justice and, and federal policy, and, and we will do so again. We've reached the end of our, our time today, so we want to thank you, our, our special guest, for a terrific discussion, Stephen F. Smith, uh, the Diane and M.O. Miller Research Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School and an affiliate here at the Academy for Justice. Thanks also to my co-host, Ashley Otto, and our uh, producer, Amina Ketchen-Kamel. This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.